Story time, episode 145. Adam Collins and Jeff. 144, Lemon. maybe. 144, 144, maybe. 144, 145. Could be 145. Depends what order we put them out in. Uh, right. We don't right. know. We don't <laughs> know yet. My document says 145. It could be 144. Either way, we're sat here at the Oval in South London to set it up. It's the morning before the final day of the Ashes. And yes. because we didn't have enough to do already today, broadcasting an entire. Who knows? By the time you listen to this, it might have all been over in an hour. It might have, might have been bowled out. Yep. In 15 overs. Might Australia have been all rain. Have, might have been rained out. It is cloudy as we record this, but not wet. Or so, it might have been a buttock-clenching last-hour finish. Uh, let's make our predictions, because predictions always go so well when you're oh, a cricket journalist. Love, love predictions. Love predictions a prediction, week after. Yeah, my only prediction for this series was that no test would go to the fifth day. In the end, only one test didn't. Yes. With the Leeds test. So I, yes. feel, um, I feel pretty relaxed about getting it wrong again. I think it'll go to the final hour, and Australia will chase it down for the loss of eight wickets. With okay. Pat Cummins there at the end, as he was at Edgbaston. Okay. I think they will probably fall over but it's just the England injuries that are making yeah. that less um, less making me feel less sure about that than I would otherwise but who knows whatever it is it'll be good um, we will have talked about it already you will already know what happened probably yeah. unless you're listening to this out of order <laughs> unless maybe you're Thomas Miles um, and you're just listening to the story times because you'll listen to the actual shows three years later when you finally catch up on your backlog of sport Love you, Tom. Love you, Tom. Um, now, what are, we, what are we doing? We're going to do story time. Um, we're going to do this because we have a couple of tales that we've been able to work on in the little gaps that we've, we've had in the schedule. And also we're going to attempt, both of us, to take a few days off after the ashes, which means that obviously in a can't stop, won't stop world, you don't not release a show. You make the show before you take the time off. And that's the, the, the mind-bending, yes. time-travelling kind of thing that we're doing here. So there'll probably be some background announcements, some PA stuff, some carts going past, stacked with plates and cups, all that kind of oval jiggery-pokery. And then at some point, we'll actually start the day of cricket. Yeah, it does tend to ramp up how challenging it is before we take any time off that we sort of backfill episodes. But... Um, we know that we haven't been as good on story time as we would have liked to have been through the series. So we want to, even if this is a shorter episode, yeah. I say that advisedly because I know that um, when I say <laughs> they're going to be short eps are often long. And it may not be the most comprehensive storytelling that we've ever done on the program. It'll be something. It, it won't a, be nothing. It's a gesture towards the right thing. Yes. Yeah, we initially, before this series, we had a dream. We were like, somehow we will do a story time every week as well as doing everything else. That was maybe with the wisdom born of prior experience we should have realised that that wasn't going to happen, but it no. was like it was like the I promise I'll change kind of thing. It was like, well, in previous <laughs> test series, this has fallen down, but this time, <laughs> with the experience we have and the way that we know things can work, we will make it happen. We somehow used our experience to delude ourselves for, a, I don't know, sixth or seventh or eighth time that during the middle of a test series, we would be able to make this show. We'll make up for it. There'll be revisit shows that we have to do I say have to do we love the revisit shows but a lot of work will go into the revisits for numbers that we've gotten wrong we've got the nerd pledge CSI group who've been helping us on WhatsApp to ensure mm -hmm. that we get fewer answers wrong the first time around although I take well, more the second time around yeah, yeah true true but in some cases the, the first as well when the clues are obtuse enough so we'll see we'll see how we go today uh, we've got about 45 minutes till I'm joined radio. So let's give it our best shot, Jeff. What are we doing? We're doing a little bit of... Well, there's no one here, so I can go... <laughs> Nerd Pledge! <laughs> Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is the game that was accidentally invented by Philip Ming that we play with the fine people at the internet who help this show, who support this program, and they do so in this way, Adam. They send in contributions to the show, donations, support, whatever you want to call it, and those things come in numbers that are not the normal numbers you would expect if you pulled a coin out of your pocket. They're very specific numbers that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to figure out what the number means. One of those wonderful people is Prav, who I see all the time, and I just saw him when getting off the tube. I missed my tube stop. Um, I was so furiously planning this episode that I ended up at Brixton rather than Vauxhall, skipped um, Stockwell in between, um, had to go the other way up the northern line to recover a little bit, get to Oval, and Prav was there. And the other person who was on the tube and getting off at Oval, walking up, was the chief executive of the ECB, Richard Gould. I don't think many chief executives would be getting public transport to the ground at a venue where they're in charge, but I guess mm. that's the anonymity you can kind of have when... Even Vrat Coley says that, doesn't he? He loves coming to England because nobody knows who he is. Or, or, and there's something about being on the tube that if you're on the tube, everybody is supposed to leave you alone. Like Even if you are True. famous on the tube, it's like, no, no, we're on the tube. You're not allowed to speak to <laughs> other people on the... 
you don't do that. Well, it's too loud anyway. There's that kind of banshee scream thing that you get as you go through. I've noticed some parts of the network are much worse than others. There's like a bit between Finsbury Park and maybe Highbury and Islington that's the worst on the entire network, I reckon, There's on the Piccadilly. There's some Jubilee line stuff as well, which really hurts the oh. ears in, in, my, in my recollection is I always feel like it, it's quite taxing on them. Yeah, but you're right. It, it isn't... If, it, I always have this... Well, not me so much as Rach and I have talked this up, this dream where we see Rob Delaney on the tube one day and we can we can reveal to him that he and I should be really best friends at some point. Right. But that would be rather awkward, wouldn't it? Going up to someone, minding their own business, headphones yeah. on, reading a book and going, excuse me, Mr Delaney, I love your comedic work and right. I feel like we could be friends in real life. How's yeah. about it? But Because you'd also have to be like, excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, Mr... Yeah, no... Oh, no, I was saying I like your comedy. Mm. Co- you know, it's, it, is, it is a horrendous sonic environment. And it's, it's one of those things, like, as I've got older, I've, like, I get more and more sensitive to it. Can't deal with noise. Can't deal with, like, You put headphones noise. on to kill noise all the time, don't yeah, you? I, yeah, it's really, it's, it's in a way kind of meant quite... It, like, it's a thing I didn't really understand until, until the last decade or so, that it's, it's kind of emotionally overtaxing sometimes. It's, it's one of the reasons that I battled in India with the, the horns and yeah. the street noise. It's not just like, oh, that's annoying. It's like, that makes me feel surrounded in some way that I can't really explain. Yeah. You yeah. Know? The other thing about running into people on the tube who you actually do know is that it's very awkward to sustain the conversation when the noise is in the background. Yes. You know, it's... It's It's like when the ground announcer goes off during the podcast. Quite, which which will will probably happen. happen. I think punters are allowed in in 12 minutes from now. So why don't we get started before we have a horn or two blowing or a ground announcer or two speaking. All right, well, let's do this. Uh, Nerd Pledge starts this week with Louis Jackson. Could be Lewis Jackson. Could be Louis Jackson. We have this with Louis Cameron all the time, who who is Louis but gets called Lewis as a joke because his name is Louis. Thus, a lot of other people think he is Lewis, and it goes back and forth. He probably doesn't know what his own name is by now. We announced him on radio as Big Lou or Louis the Oracle Cameron, which was something Daniel started in India um, right. on the radio and has kind of stuck, or at least I've tried to make it stick, because um, he seems to have that ability to foreshadow something that's about to happen tactically or something like that. He's a very good analyst on the game. Well, Louis, that's why he works on radio with us. Louis Jackson, uh, middle name Action Jackson, has sent through $1.77 in AUD. So, it comes with a hint which says this, and I don't know if it was strictly true. My hint should make this rather easy. A former coach in my hometown. Good luck. Now, I had some correspondence with Louis quite a while ago, maybe months, some months and months ago. Maybe it was a year ago. I, I don't know. Um, and Unless I've misread this, his hometown was Strathdickey in Queensland, which is up on the pretty bit of the coast up yep. near Hamilton Island. Now, I don't know if there was a bigger city where he actually lives now or he's moved to, but I was pretty sure he actually he was from Strathdickey but lived in Strathdickey, I thought. Maybe that's all the information I had. That's all the information I could give you was Strathdickey, Queensland. Yeah, and I'm sorry, Lou Jackson, my answer's not for real <laughs> as a consequence because I've tried so hard. I've tried so hard to make this work with Strathdickey and failed. I have found other things which kind of are in the periphery of that. The biggest population centre around Strathdickey is Mackay. Right. Slasher. Slasher. Slasher Mackay. And I have very fond memories of Mackay. In my political days, we won Dawson unexpectedly in the 2007 Mm -hmm. election. So we would go up to that electorate fairly routinely between 2007 and I'm pretty sure we lost it in 2010. Feels about right. Um, but, you know, it was one of those 15% seats. Dion Kelly was the MP before that. I think that was her name. Mm-hmm. And we, um, yeah, we, we, in the landslide in, in 07, picked up a number of seats in Queensland that weren't sort of on the bingo card. And that was the, wow, we've won Dawson. Wow. So, you know, budget priorities are aligned to where you've won and all that kind of thing. And, and Dawson was one of those electorates and Mackay right in the guts of it. Did Was Slasher Mackay's nickname because Mackay is a place where they grew sugarcane and you're the people who harvest the sugarcane are the Slashers? I, I know the, I know that's where the sugar canes are harvested. I didn't know that's why he was known as... No, is it? I'm wondering if it is. Oh, just, right. I don't, I never, it never actually occurred to me to think, like, I just thought it was because he did murders or something like that. Yeah, You know, yeah, a, lot no. of, he, a lot of unsolved, I don't know, <laughs> kind of uh, that, that musical about the barber, um, you know, Sweeney Todd, that kind of thing. I, I just assumed it was, the, it was the murder rate, but maybe it was to do with sugar cane. You hear good stories of nicknames. We heard it. I'm not going to tell the story, but a cracking nickname of um, a, a state cricketer yesterday when talking to a player agent. Which um, you know the, the, the etymology of these nicknames, how far back they go, and all the rest of it. Um, it might well be that it's a clever one, like Slasher Mackay, because he was Mackay, and that's where the sugar cane was harvested. We'll find out. I'm sure someone will know. Right. These are the answers which are, which this won't be. One seven seven. 
my hint should make this rather easy. It, uh, yeah, it, it, not quite. Ha- Matthew Hayden's a Queenslander um, from Kingaroy. Is Kingaroy near Strathdickie? Nope, nope, it's not. Made 177. <laughs> Queensland's a big place. Uh, well, you'll learn about some distances in a moment against okay. uh, the Windies at Antigua in 2003 at the old rec ground. Wade Seckham, I thought, because of the coaching reference here, a former yep. coach. Former coach. You know, Wade Seckham More than a former the, player. Well, yeah. And he is the coach of Queensland right now. Sure. He might have been a former coach up where he grew up in, in Strathdickie, perhaps. No, he didn't grow up in Strathdickie. Uh, Wade Seckham uh, is from Mergon or Mergon, possibly. Mergon. It's got to be Mergon. With which, an O after it, surely. Which is a nine-hour drive from Strathdickie. Peter Anderson's another Queenslander, famous Queensland, uh, well, I say famous, um, well-known uh, Queenslander um, for various yep. reasons, not least the Ian Healy transition, but he is from Brisbane. He's coached PNG, I reckon, as an associate nation and other yep. places. He might have also coached Queensland. Anyway. Um, Joey Dawes coached PNG as well, didn't Joey he? Dawes coached PNG as the rain starts to fall. The oh, not good. a great That's sign nice. for the cricket in our predictions earlier that... Australia might win eight wickets down. We might be rained out after all. Uh, John Buchanan, the most famous Queensland cricket coach, you would say, I think. Yep. You know? He's from Ipswich, which is, you know, near enough to Brisbane, so not, not, not Buck. Then I got a bit more rarities and oddities and yeah. using other search terms. Glenn Baricatio made 177 runs in five first-class games for Queensland in the Mitchell Johnson era. But it's not him, though. He's from Redcliffe. Also closer to the capital, so that's not going to work. Well, that's where the Dolphins are. That's that's uh, that's rugby league territory. That's William McInnes territory. Yes, if, it if is. If you've never uh, listened to our William McInnes interview, it's one of our favourites in the back catalogue. Bloody hell, that's over three years ago since yeah. we sat down with Bill McInnes. Um, hopefully, there'll be a chance to do that in real life at, at some point. Old cock. Old cock. Old is, cock. That's what he just calls everybody. Hello, old cock. <laughs> Hello, old cock. It's it's fuck. It's raining really. It's like it's misty rain, but it's very dense out there yeah. um, to the whatever direction I that is. I can barely see the MI6 building. That's how they want it. It's <laughs> exactly how they want it. Then I got in touch with my old mate Mike Kasperovich and thought Casper might be able to help here because he's involved in the Bulls Masters. In fact, I think sure. he, does he run the Bulls Masters now? I think he, he and Jimmy Maher might be running it together. Anyway, Casper knows every past player in Queensland. Are Bulls Masters the same as Cowboys? Like they're just in charge of the Bulls. <laughs> well, you know. it, Go over there. It's a, quite a significant organisation, the Bulls Masters. They do a lot of great charity work. Mm. But before he came back to me, I thought, what about other athletes from Mackay? Surely there's a way of finding in Mackay the nearest population centre a cricketer. Um, no Strathdickie, nothing coming up. Mm-hmm. What about Mackay? Well, no, but um, Skippy Hugel, uh, uh, I think he won an Olympic gold, Skippy, in 2004. No, no not he Skippy. Did, he, uh, didn't he? He retired after 04 and came back came before back the Commonwealth Games in 2010. That's yeah. what he came back for. And I think he made the Olympic team in 2012. I don't he think he won ever a won an Olympic gold. definitely won a bronze and a butterfly. Yeah, no, he certainly medalled. Um, oh, <laughs> medal yeah, in in uh, in 2000 and 2004. I reckon he might have been yeah. in the medley relay in 2004 as well. Which uh, I thought he got one gold in a relay once. Did Australia win the medley in in because the US won every medley from when it started in '84 or whatever it was. And uh, anyway, anyway, Skippy Hugels from there. Baden Choppy, the hockey player, used to captain Australia. Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman. Freeman. I thought, what about Kathy? I, I ambitiously thought, she's not 177 centimetres this year. Of course she's not. She's 164 centimetres. However, you can buy a cardboard cutout of Kathy Freeman, yeah. which is 177 centimetres tall. Oh, good. Which I will do. So they've boosted her up a Which bit. I will do. Oh, I was thinking about oh, no. cardboard cutouts this morning. I've got my Jason Dunstall. Okay. Um, I've got my James Hurd for different reasons. After Lance Franklin retired this morning, which I was not devastated to learn when I woke up, but of course I was sad and nostalgic. First thing I saw was that, that Bud had wrapped it up and you know, providing some of the greatest memories of my life. I will find a Lance Franklin cardboard cutout at Tunley Wright. I spent one of the lunch breaks in India playing the... the Bruce McAvaney call of Kathy Freeman's 400 oh, <laughs> because I got deep into a conversation with Clint Wield and a Dirk Nattis about iconic pieces of commentary oh, yeah. and I was like stop everything we have to we have to watch Kathy Freeman Looks win the 400 <laughs> uh, yeah. Kathy with work to do Kathy with work to do at the 150 this is when she kicked in Atlanta oh goodness me One of the- remember Billy Birmingham released Bruce 2000 he did the um, he did a version of Bruce calling Kathy yep. and released it as a CD single for Christmas in 2000 wow. and even that gets me fired up wow um, get the shipmates guys on the uh, what a champion <laughs> what a victory and then, um, Dawn Fraser what a relief fair enough what so a I relief. she was yeah. unfairly criticised for that um, so it wasn't Kathy uh, I broadened out yet further and had a look at Johnny Briggs
Craig's bowling average is closest yep. to seven, one seven, seventeen point seven, seventeen point seven five. We discussed him recently. The eleven wickets at Lords in eighteen eighty six. The twelve. I'm at just Adelaide looking up Queensland. Eighteen ninety six. Fifteen in a match in Cape Town later on, and the sad demise. You, you and I did the story of Johnny Briggs yep. um, not long ago. Very, very sad, passing away at thirty nine. Then, then. I, I don't think this is going to work, but Casper got back to me and said, what about Mick Polson? He lives in Mackay. He's a great bloke. I'm like, all right, let's have a look. Mick Polson um, did, I remember the name from um, Mercantile Mutual days in, uh, in the early 90s, late mm-hmm. 80s for Queensland, played about 15 first-class games, about 15 uh, games for Queensland in 50-over cricket and took 17 wickets. Um, that's not going to be right, but he's a great bloke from Mackay. One seven, not quite one seven seven. Mm. Unfortunately, wasn't a clue that was as easy as Lewis Jackson thought. I'm sorry, Lou Jackson, again, but that at least will get us going in the right direction. And one further point here, Lou, New Pledge CSI have looked into this. They haven't got a Scooby either. So um, either we've yeah. got the wrong city or wrong town, rather, or or we're looking entirely in the wrong direction and we'll come back to it in the revisit. So I'm sorry I've not been successful. I'm beginning to suspect that that's the case, that uh, that we don't have it. I mean, because, yeah, distances, you can get very loose with distances in Australia in terms of what's nearby. I mean, I'm sort of looking at it going, well, uh, uh, Hervey Bay, well, that's not too far. It's probably about nine hours away. Beth Mooney's from there. I remember yeah, that. Bay, yeah. But, yeah, you, you, I remember, you know, doing the drive from London to Leeds after the T20, the women's T20, to get to the test match, and it was like three and a half hours. And, you know, that was a slog leaving town at about midnight and getting in at 3.30 in the morning. Sure. But it's still, in, in, in an Australian context, that's a close drive. Well, Strathdickie you know. is a two... I'm told, uh, I think Glenn Finkel crunched the numbers on this, Strathdickie is a two-hour drive from Mackay, yet on the map, it feels rather close. But, yeah, um, yeah, they're pretty much right next to each other. Airlie yeah. Beach... You know, yeah. Bowen could be Bowen. could be any of those places. Louis, give us a clue. Let us know what's going on Louis, uh, Louis, because we have not clue. solved that number. I may, however, have solved this number because I reckon it's going to be pretty straightforward. It's from Phil Jeffs. It's three pounds thirty-three, and mm-hmm. I think with that currency and with that number, it has to be Graham Gooch, <laughs> does it not? The it, Gooch. It has to be the notcha. The notcha. The point between one point and another. <laughs> Graham Gooch making 333 against India, something that we spoke to him about in our interview. Well, we didn't really talk about the 333 much. We, we sort of skipped around that. Like um, a lot of our interviews, we, we didn't talk about the thing that's... The obvious stuff. The obvious stuff. Like that is, whether you're most known for, you're unlikely to get asked about on the final words. Yeah, or maybe in passing. So there's a little bit in passing. His team, who get beaten up by Australia in 1989 unexpectedly, they have a hard-fought West Indies tour. They're nearly 2-0 up in 89-90. In there's the abandonment and there's a run chase that gets stalled in the rain when they need about 30 to win. They're 1-0 up at that point and they're not able to finish it off. They could still have been bowled out at that point as well. It could have gone either way because they were a few wickets down and, and he was injured. So they end up losing the last two tests of that series and losing the series 2-1. But... Coming into 1990, they beat up New Zealand. Gooch makes a ton at Birmingham. Has a new opening partner named Michael Atherton. <laughs> I'll tell you what, like the, the, the indignity yesterday of during the rain break when, I when know, Sky got, I saw this. They got Atherton and Glenn McGrath into the indoor nets and then just played all of the dismissals and then had Glenn McGrath bowl to Michael Atherton now. And it was like, do you want to just dump a bucket of custard on his head? Do you want to be like, oh, you got slimed? Like subjecting like, him to his tormentor yeah. right there in front of him on his own network as well. And on the other side of him was Ricky Ponting, you know, who was generally probably there, but certainly in the later years, gobbing off at him um, from backward point or cover point. I feel like Ponting caught him in the cord headingly in the first innings, which was one of the last times that McGrath got him in 2001. So that was the test Cat came in for. Yeah. And he tried to let a ball go. I can see it in the mind's eye. Tried to let a ball go that deflected, you know... Uh, sort of off the toe of the off bat. Off the toe of the bat and went to third slip. That feels about right. So, yeah, Ponting's yeah. there, probably gobbing off still at him. Um, and McGrath, you know... Ponting at third would have would have been it, right? It would have been Mark Waugh first, Warren second. It was Warren first. Warren first, Mark Waugh. Oh, Hayden was in there too, of course. Hayden was usually in the gully or Yeah, by the time that... Yeah, Hayden was occasionally... Moved into the slips after Mark Waugh And would feel slips of warm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. they had a great team. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that just, that just seemed a pretty rough bit of treatment. Well, it's raining. Time to be ritually humiliated on live television. In you go, Michael. But he was making runs at that point as well. India arrive. I mean, for Gooch, this is, this is almost life-changing stuff. Late into his career, so it's the week when he turns 37. First test... Lords opening the batting. Atherton's out early. David Gower is back. They're, they're, they've teamed up again. By the time Gower is out for 40, England have 141 on the board. 
And he goes on with Alan Lamb and Robin Smith for company, 139 and 100 not out. They make a decent strike rate of 68 for Gooch, hits 43 fours and three sixes. Yep. They're 653 for four declared when he gets out bowled by Manoj Prabhakar for 333. A nice number. Chris Gale liked it as well, put mm. it on the back of his shirt. Mm. And you would think that should be that, you know, bat once, roll them, make them follow on. Doesn't quite work that Doesn't way. Doesn't quite work at all. Yeah, make 454, <laughs> which you might notice is 199 short of 653. Ravi Shastri, 100 not out, opening, sorry, 100 dismissed opening the batting, 100 flat. Our sports betting enthusiast Muhammad Azharuddin makes 121. And Kapil Dev, 77 not out. The point where batting with Narendra Hawani, the spinner, at number 11, Kapil hits four sixes off Eddie Hemmings to save the follow-on. Hawani's out for naught from two balls after that. It's great footage as well and, and wonderful commentary both on telly and on radio. All four sixes, dead straight. Before the nurse, I think this is, and correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, but... I'm fairly certain that the, the old Compton and Edrich went up in 1991. This test is in 1990. The previous Edrich and Compton, they weren't called that, by the way. It was just a stand at the other side at the nursery end. Were quite low, pre-media centre days. And he pongoed all four of them over the top of the, the tiny little stands that sat there at the northern end of the ground. So he has to bat again, 123 the second time around, the icing on the cake. First player to get a triple and a... Another 100, Kumar Sangakkara does that against Bangladesh, if I remember rightly, some years later. So most runs in a test for Gooch with 456 in the match. The second 100's different, 123 from 113 balls, spanks it. Outrageous for the era to make 100 at faster than a runner ball. Interestingly, doesn't get the 100 at faster because he's, he's not on any of those lists for fastest England 100. So he must have got it off more than 100 balls and then whacked a couple at the end. Right. But still outrageous for that period of time. And Wisdom describes it as Gooch reaching greatness at 37. They pile on another 270, put India back in, bowl them out. Gooch finishes the the innings off with a run out. And then going on in the series, two high-scoring draws. He makes another 100, then he makes 85 and 88 in the series. 700-plus runs in in a three-test series, ridiculous. And I thought, once we've chatted about it, maybe I'll do a little five-minute snap interview with Phil Walker because I reckon he will remember some things about Graham Gooch and the 333. And then we might hear from Graham Gooch himself. Jump cut. We've got Phil Walker, editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, and Graham Gooch aficionado. <laughs> uh, when, when I saw the 333 come up, I thought, well, I know I'm seeing you today, and if there's one person I want to talk to about it, it's you. First, when I say Graham Gooch 333, what, what comes to mind? What comes to mind, he hit a shot out of the perimeter of Lords and into the uh, scaffolding um, at the back <laughs> of the mound stand. And Gucci wasn't really given to much uh, facial expressions. Even he raised an eyebrow and, and puffed his cheeks out. His biggest six, probably top 10 six he's ever hit at Lords. That was when he was on about 280. Uh, I remember Richie Benno's commentary on the afternoon first ball after tea uh on day two and gooch was on 299 at tea and he turned ravi shastri around the corner for a single and richie says 300 to graham gooch to the first ball after tea 66 to go (laughs) and he didn't get there and the reason why he didn't get there is because (laughs) manoj prabhaka who was a kind of very lovable cricketer Mm. honest toiler yep an English-style medium pacer in the era of, of unresponsive, tough Indian conditions. And he'd run in in the shadow of Kapil, who played in that game, of course. And he, he burst through Gucci's uh, cover drive after he'd hit about 45 through the covers. And he just got one with a ball that would have been about 150 overs old. <laughs> he managed to just get it just to arc through Gucci's, Gucci's cover drive. And I remember the sound of the ground... It's like you've heard that you've lost a favourite auntie, you know, oh. and it was just this sort of horrifying gasp around the ground <laughs> as we realised, I say we, I wasn't there, I was 10 years old, that they realised that it, the inevitability of the history was actually, in very cricketing fashion, just going to be dragged back right. from you. 33 shy of beating, beating or 30, yeah, 33 shy of beating the record. Um, and you realise why that record is so hard to beat and why people don't do it. Precisely, yeah. precisely that. He was dropped. Do you know this? 
who's dropped by Kieran Morey. Absolute gooba on 34. <laughs> um, Just the 299 extra. Was it Manoj? I think it was Prabarka, or it might have been Dev, but okay. it was. No, it wasn't. It was a. If I call Manoj Prabarka a toiler, then this lad, Sandeep Sharma, he was called. The one who Gooch ran out to end the match. Yes, Jeffrey, from mid on. Very good. Very good from you. And by the way, he took catches and got out. Yep. Sanjay Mandrake and nicked him off. So it's a good game. 456 runs in the game, Gooch. Yeah, strummed 120 on 123 and, in the second. And a wicket. I didn't realise he picked yeah, up yeah, a wicket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sangakara didn't get a wicket when he got a triple and a ton. Forget that. Yeah. Mandrake was batting quite nicely at three. Good player. And yeah. Gooch came on and wobbled one past his outside edge. And Jack Russell standing up took the catch. But yeah, it was Sandeep Sharma. Like five foot nothing. Cheeky little 75 mile an hour awayers. And Gooch just popped forward and he took a nice healthy edge. Yeah. And it was right there for Kieran Murray. He didn't have to dive. It wasn't down by his bootlaces. Just took it right there and it popped out. So Gooch should have gone on 34. Ooh. I don't think he gave too many chances after that. <laughs> there's a, pretty much every beginning, there's a, there's a mischance there's, there's a somewhere, moment. right? There's, there's a moment. There's something that could have been different. What do you think, what was the significance for Gooch uh, that deep into his career, but to have, to build a monument? Right. So that, that summer was his first summer as captain. First full summer as captain. He'd captained a bit before in the four captains summer against the West Indies and one or two others. And he'd obviously taken England, a roughhouse greenhorn team to West Indies that winter. And they'd done okay. They'd won at Savannah Park. They went down 2-1 in the end, but he'd done okay. He'd done really well, actually. They could have certainly drawn if not won that series. But anyway, 1990 was his first full summer as skipper. And he was late 30s by this point already. And he had a fully developed technique by this point and he'd made some, some useful runs as skipper, but that was his marker, really. Mm. And now at the other end, you had some young lads. Atherton was opening in that yep. series, right? And Atherton would have been 22, 23, just making his way. And it was very much Gucci's time because he ordered his team around certain kind of pillars of English cricket. Alan Lamb was in there in the middle order, played really well for Gooch for a couple of years. Robin Smith as well. Jack Russell kept. Angus Fraser was a very good seamer. He had back problems after that and became a more kind of work-a-day seamer, although a good one. But early on, he was a really brilliant attacking seam bowler. And Devon Malcolm, Gooch trusted Malcolm and he liked Devon Malcolm, so he threw him the ball as well. So it was a really interesting collection of players. There was always one or two eccentrics in it. Eddie Hemmings bowled spin, aged 42 or 3 yeah. in that game. And, of course, Capel Dev took him for four. Yep. As you know, Capel took him for four in a row. And again, Richie said, I suppose it's only logical that if you need 24 to avoid the follow-on, why not get it in four hits? <laughs> uh, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a bonkers game of cricket. The, the hipster that used to be in me before life took its toll always gravitated to the Mohammed Azaruddin knock in that same game. Sure. Which I think was 82 balls. Mm-hmm. He backed uh, himself in, you might say. <laughs> yeah. And he, he, he made 121 in the end, as a. And I'd never seen him bat live. And because back in the day, you didn't really have, you know, winter tours. And so I'd never really, I just read about them. And I was only 10 year old, but you always already knew about this, this yep. genius. And I'd never seen him. And he wore a, an olive green helmet. Everyone else was wearing the blue Indian helmet. He wore an olive green helmet with no badge on it. And a visor right up to his eyes. And he had a V100. Oh, the V100 bat. Mark Ward bat, right? Patented the two of them. And he just took England's quicks, Chris Lewis, Fraser, Malcolm, through mid-wicket, as you can picture in your mind's eye, ball after ball after ball, for an 80-odd ball hundred. And it was the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. That was on the Saturday after Gooch had already done his thing. Yeah. I think Mo had won the toss, as we didn't won the toss, and decided to bowl. That might be wrong, but I think that was the right. case. So he I owed them. I didn't even look at the toss on he the He owed them, 650 for four. <laughs> he owed them. But for those who were there, and I wasn't there on the Saturday, um, I told you what it was happening yeah. to me. But uh, it's, in my, it's imprinted because I had the video of it and I know every word of it and all the rest of it. And that innings was extraordinary. Eddie Hemmings did him on the inside edge, bold neck and crop for 121 in a session. Yeah. It was that kind of game, really. Right. And so, and you, you loved that more than the, like, but the Goose 333, was that, was that emotionally significant to you as a kid? It, it was because I, I grew up literally 10 minutes up from Chelmsford and there, there was always that weird dichotomy of having 
watching this beast of a cricketer on your telly, hooking Marshall and Ambrose off his nose, and then seeing him in his iconic white lid, traipsing down the steps at Chelmsford literally the morning after. Mm. And Derek Pringle put it well, his old teammate, he put it well to me. He says he, he treated each innings with the same degree of respect, whether he was playing at Chelmsford on a Tuesday morning or Lords against, against the Windies or the Aussies. And you could literally touch him as he walked down those steps at the rickety old ground at Chelmsford. And there was always something sort of magical and almost surreal as a kid. Because, you know, you watch people on the TV, your pop stars, your sports stars, and you see them epic, right? And unimaginable. By, by being made small, they're made huge. Right, for sure. Exactly that. Exactly that. So I remember my dad got me a little signed Gucci bat with all the numbers on it. 333, 123, the number of balls he faced. Aggregate in the series, 1056. And it was all on this one little bat with Gucci's signature on it, you know, and I... As a ten-year-old, I popped that up on my on my bedroom mantelpiece, and just it was just there. It was just there for years and years, and it was just an indelible part of my sort of pompous time, sporting formative years. You know, you, you just can't shake it. You can't shake it. Phil Walker, thank you. Now let's hear from Graham Gooch himself. All oh, right, yeah. It's worth putting the numbers out there. So you make 752 runs in a three-test series against India. That'll never be broken. The most test runs ever in an English summer, overtaking Bradman. Again, very unlikely that'll ever be broken. The most remarkable part of that, I think, is the fact that you're 37 and it's taken you, as Wisdom described, it took you to 37 to reach greatness. I mean, mentioned it before, but that, that usually is when your ordinary cricketer is looking to do something else, but you're just turning it on. Yeah, well, the, the fitness was there, the motivation was there, and, you, you know, you have to be right in the mind. My mind, as being England captain, was right. I, I, I love playing, I love scoring runs, I love being out there, I love the, the battle against the best, as you say, uh, as I've said to you, and I was still, you know, in good condition, you know, better condition at that age than I probably was 10 years. Right. And all I would say now to you is, if I had my time again, I wish I'd, I'd have known all those things, you know, 10, 15 years before. But you don't, you sort of evolve yourself, you learn as you go on, you become smarter, you do all these things. It should have been, you know, there is a great saying, isn't there? The only competitive advantage you've got over the opposition is to learn faster. Well, I wish I had learned faster. Hmm. The crazy summer that you have, huge runs that summer, the 456 in the match, obviously. Is it, is it the fact that you've got the captaincy at that point that makes you like go on this mad fitness regime and decide that you're, you're just going to be the fittest guy in the team uh, regardless of age and, and keep pushing on? No, that happened some 10, 10, 12 years before. I mean, there was the one, there was the one story which is absolutely true. So I used to live in a place called Gidea Park, Romford, not far from here, 12... 13 miles from here we used to play a, a week at a place called Valentine's Park a week's cricket festival cricket mm. this is Ilford which is the club I used to play for when, when I played club cricket ok so that's about 9-10 miles away from where I lived I used to run to the ground every morning which was madness really and then play all day I didn't run back. Someone used to give me a lift back <laughs> after the game. But I used to run to the game. So it, it was a bit over the top. So, no, that started a lot earlier. Right. But I, I do put down my longevity as a player to the fitness regime that I installed you know, for myself many years before. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. The other thing I want to throw in is that um, yesterday, at time of recording, James Anderson played Test cricket at age 41, Ashes cricket at 41. Graham Gooch did that at the end of the 94-95 um, series as he was coming to the end of his career. I'm not sure if you were listening to the commentary at the time. In fact, I think you were. You're in the back of the box. Um, who was the most recent Australian to play Ashes cricket when they were 41? I actually got this. You were on air. Um, oh, right. And I was, I was thinking about it. I was trying to run through it in my head. And I was like, you, because you mentioned Black, Don Blackie and, and Bert Ironmonger, who were spinners. And I thought, well, they played a little earlier, but who was keeping wicket to them? Yeah. Well, the clue's in his name, Bert Oldfield. And we just spent, what, 20 minutes talking about Oldfield and his extraordinary life, both as a, 
uh, a war veteran and, and nearly perishing in World War One, then coming back and we all know what happened in body line, then to still be there in 36, yeah. 37, it, it was at the Melbourne Test of 36, 37, the Bradman 270, that, that he's 41 playing Test cricket again. So a bit of history on the way through and that, that's an emblem, isn't it? Gooch making those runs at 37 that his best cricket came so deep into his career. Last thing on this, Mark Taylor nearly did it too. Triple, 334 not out. 91, I reckon, in the second dig. And at the time, all the chat was, could he do what Gooch did mm -hmm. only seven years earlier? Not to be, but eight years earlier, rather. But I'm glad you had the chance to talk to Phil about that, who um, has been um, idolising Gooch his whole life. Yeah, yeah. I thought if anybody's going to have a, a fresh perspective on it uh, than the one that we have, he would be the man to talk to. So let us move to our next number. It is Kieran O'Kane. Uh, it comes in euros. It's a very generous 30 98. So 30 euros and 98 a euro cents. Could have come up with a better name than euro cents, <laughs> couldn't they? I mean, they were just phoning that one in. What do you yeah. want to call it? Euro cents? It's like yeah. when they started the Scotland, Ireland, yeah. Netherlands T20 comp and they were, called, they were kind of like euro slam. the euro slam when it could have easily been the euro thrash and we would have right. got right behind that, wouldn't we? It never happened, sadly, that, that comp. But yeah, the euro slam should be like a, like a, a bunch of different shots. You know, you, you get a sort of Jaeger thing <laughs> and like a, a finette in a, I don't know, so some of the terrible digestives, maybe an ouzo in there. Remember the Soviet ice bomb? Well, maybe that no. was something Dono inv invented. Dono, that sounds Dono. like something Dono invented. <laughs> so Dono, oh, I don't know how long ago this was, around the time that Buddy was doing Buddy's best things in version 1.0. So, okay, so 06, to explain 07. for people in England, when Lance Franklin, a <laughs> AFL footballer, <laughs> who was retired playing today. well, who retired today, was playing well in 2006-07. As a kid, as a teenager. Our friend Andrew Donison, what did he do? He, he um, now, Dono will, if I get this wrong, I'm getting all sorts of trouble. It was, it was when the um, Jaeger bomb first came into prominence. Right. And Dono, I think it was Dono, invented what was known as... His, his fantasy football team is still known as the Soviet Ice Bombs all these years later. It was half a shot of blue Karakao, half a shot of Contro into a shot glass, dropped okay. into like a lemon rusky, okay. and it would turn blue and then you would scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> like a Smirnoff Black or, or, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a, um, Mike's Hard Lemonade or a sure. Stolly. Remember Stolly's? Stolly. I remember, Stolly. yeah. Um, the, the Lemon Ruskies and the Stollies, that was a big sort of just at the start of the millennium thing. Yeah. Remember um, David Cloak going on television in a Mike's Hard Lemonade top trying to get <laughs> Jason Cloak off before the 2002 grand final. He thought by arguing on the footy show, the tribunal would revisit the decision. Oh. That's not how it works. Didn't, didn't, Jason didn't, Cloak belted him. Didn't quite work that way. Um, yeah, it was like, well, you, here's the thing that you can drink that doesn't taste like alcohol. Perfect mm. for, you know, 14-year-olds. So away they went. Um, it's not surprising that they got a little bit more restrictive on mm. RTDs as they like to call them. UDL, we used to call them underage drinking licence. <laughs> That's what we used to call UDLs. No, no, there was another word, Alcopops. <laughs> yeah, Alcopops was, was in the rut era. Yeah, yeah th that's right. We, again, this goes back to that similar time, 2008, when the excise went up on Alcopops overnight. They didn't tell, not sure how it was done instrumentally, but overnight, at Saturday at midnight, all the excise went up and all hell broke loose. It was quite the political issue <laughs> for a time there, but I have no recollection of why or how but it yeah. happened yeah everybody happened. who was buying four packs of 440 mil Woodstocks <laughs> bourbon and cokes were not happy about the fact that they went from being a couple of bucks each to about eight bucks each I still think of the four pack of Woodies whenever we talk about um, the woodstock.co.uk Woodstock cricket bats 20% off TFW 20 by Woodstock cricket bat um, why not they're beautiful things I'm using one against the Gloucestershire legends in a couple of days yes we saw John O'Gordon the Woodstock boss uh, at here at the Oval um, earlier in the week, having walked between all of the England test venues, yeah. some 660 miles or for the taps, yeah, for the taps. Money. Basically, walked to John O'Groats, maybe longer than Lands End to John O'Groats when you factor in all the diversions and so on. But yeah, he walked the entire test route for the Lord's Tabs. Um, if you love what the Lord's Tabs do, and even if you don't, and if you want to learn more about them, sign up to the mailing list and that would make them happy. It would make us happy. Um, it would make the world a, a marginally better place as people learn more about their great work. 70 years as a charity helping people with um, disability and disadvantage have access to our great game. So let's look at Kieran O'Kane. 30 euros and 98 euro cents. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, he says this for a clue. I finally updated my nerd pledge to something more interesting and more generous to match your stellar work. Thank you, Kieran. Kieran, 
after the rather boring previous pledge. Well, don't talk yourself down, Kieran. We've got to build each other up. That's what we're here to do. It's a player I have a very tenuous link to, having served them drinks at a conference I was working at. I like this, like where this is going. <laughs> so one, one of the hospitality workers here yesterday is an aspiring journalism student who Barrett was giving a big pep talk to yesterday about what she needs to do and who she needs to talk to and, and how she can hit up these contacts and how you just got to get out there and back yourself. It's very sweet. And there's another hospitality guy who's been um, who's been sitting in our commentary box whenever he has breaks. He's been one of the guys helping out in the in the suite uh, next to where we're recording this. And um, it, it's been his enthusiasm in the back of the box when having a sandwich and a can of Coke or whatever it is. It's, um, it, it's, it's nice. It's nice seeing um, how much natural enthusiasm there is for the game. So, right. So Kieran says this. A conference I was working at, the clue is that this is not an international stat. I had hoped he might be a dusty old bastard. But Australia A was the highest level he reached. <laughs> and the player in question attempted unsuccessfully to do the reverse Collins career path. Well, there was only one of us who was ever going to be allocated this one to solve Australia A and I assume a cricketer going into politics all yours you know when sometimes you see a clue and you're like ah oh, beautiful no need to search around for this one yep. I don't even know what the number is in relation to the cricketer but I know who it's going to be mm-hmm. this was that this was that doesn't happen too often let me tell you a little story about a man called Greg Rowell here is a story all about how Adam met a man named Greg Rowell we did in have... West Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, we did have breakfast with Greg Rowell a number of years oh, yeah. ago before a Gabba Test match. You yeah. and I and one of his um, one of his colleagues. I think we were trying to hit him up for or hit his colleague up for some money for the to sponsor us Might have for been some something travel like that. or something like that. Um, anyway, that's when he was a board aspirant for Queensland cricket. He's now on the Cricket Australia board. We'll come to how that all happened. Breakfast with Greg Rowell, title of my autobiography. Yeah, well, I was quite pumped, you know, because I like a lot of people of my age are rather obsessed with that Australia race summer of 94, 95 to the extent to which I made a documentary about it. Yeah, I don't think you can say like a lot of people of your age. I think more than just about anybody else. Like you, on, in terms of the obsession list, you're at the top of the pyramid. Maybe, maybe. Well, Gilly and I, well, Shannon Gill from Code doing a brilliant job writing about all sorts of sport over there and also doing a segment each week with Jared Waitley on SEN and Dan Bredig, of course, the, the age's chief cricket writer. As part of our greatest season, it was series. There were more, more than one, about five of them, I think. We did Australia 8 and... One of the first names on our interview list was we must speak to Greg Rao. We must speak to the man who subsequently got turned into um, a piece of urban dictionary rhyming slang later in his life to go the Greg Rao. Now, earlier on, before that happened, Mm -hmm. he was a fast bowler and he was genuinely quick and he first kind of became prominent and on the scene via the PM's 11. He'd grown up... (laughs) Baby John Burgess, can I buy a Rowell? Can I buy a Rowell? Yeah, well. So he had this background in New South Wales and Canberra. I think he played, if I recall correctly, and the story has a number of different diversions here, but he he got picked to play in the PM's 11 in 1991 and took a six for. And that got him on the scene, got him noticed. It was against India. A young Shane Warne was playing with him. That would have been just before Shane Warne had made his international debut as well. It doesn't... He doesn't quite get to kick on at that stage, though, because Queensland is so deep. He's playing for Queensland by this point. They've got Kaspervic, Rackerman, who, by the way, Rackerman is from the same place as Mick Posnan, who I was talking about earlier. Not Mackay, but near Mackay. So. Near Strathdickie. Near, near enough to Strathdickie, I hope. <laughs> Andy Bickle, Dirk Tasla. So Queensland are pretty strong. But jump fast forward to 94-95, and he gets picked for the PM's 11 again yeah. against England. Um, Queensland, Paul- Queensland is stupidly big. Like, the, the, yeah. the, there's that sort of fact that never leaves my brain because I, I've done... I've driven from Melbourne to the north coast of New South Wales, like, within a couple of hours of Queensland. Melbourne to Brisbane is shorter than Brisbane to the top of Queensland. Sure is. Like, yeah. it's, it's a ludicrously large place. It is. And then there's all of the inland. Here is the title of this episode. Storytime 144, Queensland's fucking huge. Queensland is fucking huge. Um, so back to Greggy Rao. So Paul Keating launched the season. I don't know why this is in my notes, but it was when I interviewed Greg. Okay. Um, the, 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 uh, the, before the, um, uh, the... At the PM's 11, he was the season launch talker mm-hmm. Paul, who... who didn't have a huge amount of time for cricket, but, but so it goes. And he bowls well enough in that game to get picked up in the Australia A squad. Keating um, did. To play, Incredible. Uh, yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul Keating, PJ Keating. Yeah. Bowled first change. <laughs> Got it up around the fucking throat. You could see him as a Jardine sort of character. Yeah, Paul yeah. Keating. He'd be more a batter than a bowler, come to mm. think of it. He'd be, he'd be um, clapping the hands. and but uh, He'd be a scheming, like, you know, six or seven who didn't bowl much yeah. kind of type. Yeah, maybe a sort of a, yeah amateur style, bats yeah. eight, doesn't bowl, yeah. stands at gully. Yeah. 
yeah, Nawab, you know, Vizzy yeah. Anagram kind of um, Ma- Major kinda Spencer, and the, the, the Surrey Cats and after the war, who they, as we've talked about on Story oh, yep. Time with Daniel, when they got the wrong Major Spencer, um, <laughs> the wrong amateur. Anyway, right, so Australia A, he comes in and gets picked for that on the back of the PM's 11 form and a little bit of form with Queensland. Misses the first game at Perth. Uh, there's a great story at Perth how um, Greg Chappell... Keating was in it. He would be like, this is the PM's 11. <laughs> like, it is my 11. Yeah. I am playing. Well, the PM's 11 restarted when Bob Hawke um, came into the job and, you know, bit of a diversion here but it was used as a platform for players to get into the national team because it effectively was Alan Border captained it every year mm. when he was national skipper this is you go to the 1984 PM's 11 David Boone makes 100 against the Windies and it's considered the last thing he needed to do yep. before getting picked for a test match as he did that summer for the first time Dennis Lilly played his last game for Australia air quotes was the Australian 11 the PM's 11 in that same game that David Boone as a youngster made that century in so you know yeah it was a a carnival game to an extent, but it also had some mm. currency because it was mostly the test side back then. Anyway, so, yeah, this, this Aussie A team gets assembled and Greg Chappell's looking after it for the most part and he's the guy in the nets and no one can get him out because Greg Chappell had retired, you know, a decade earlier, but he's still, much as it was with Bradman batting in the 60s and would go in there without pads on and that kind of thing, Greg Chappell was a, a tough taskmaster but difficult to bowl to, according to Greg. He does come in for Adelaide against Australia. We'll come to that in a sec. They have a big win over Zimbabwe and then... Uh, uh, they, they, I think Australia, uh, sorry, England narrowly beat Australia A in that first round of games. But in Adelaide, when Australia beat Australia A by nine runs and Mark Taylor's leading the Aussies off, having defended about 220-odd, Greg Rao bowled the first over of that game, I reckon. They got kind of booed off or jeered off because everybody naturally was barracking for Australia A. You could mm. see how that would happen. Sure. You know, you're barracking for the underdog. It's an interesting concept. The guys were in green instead of the guys were in gold and, and all the rest of it. So... Due to all this depth in Australian fast bowling at the time, uh, Raoul was in competition with Merv Hughes, who people forget he played for Aussie A, Paul Rifle, who was Australia A's attack leader, all the way until the final, until that unjust moment when the selectors made him 12th man for Australia, which many people, like me, still get angry about to this day. So because up. Paul Rifle was brought into the Aussie A, into the Australian lineup rather, as 12th man for the final, the first final at the SCG, Raoul gets returned to the Aussie A team to lead the attack. Now, He's, lead, he's opening the bowling with Shane George, quick and reverse swing and all the rest of it. We've already had the, the Mark Taylor, uh, Matthew Hayden bust up in one of the games where Hayden gets not suspended but fined a fairly significant portion of his match fee for getting stuck into Tubby. But Damien Martin, as captain of Aussie A, trusts Greg Rao to bowl the death overs. And that last over, I think Australia need four to win. Steve Waugh and Ian Healy are out there. Ian Healy is one of Greg's... Um, state captain, Stuart Law being the other one. Uh, and it's an extraordinary last over. You go, go back and watch it on YouTube. Three dot balls to start. He's so big, Rao. He's a gigantic guy. He's sprawled out over the pitch to cut off one ball that smashed down to mid-off, and he just lays out in front of the ball. They can't get it past him. Then there's, I think, an inside edge skews away, and Australia get the winning runs with two balls to go. But the entire SCG wanted Rao to do it. And for a moment, for a moment, he was a... He was a bit of a cricketing household name. In fact, instead of me telling you all about it, here was Greg Rouse speaking on the greatest season that was Australia A back in 2019. Yeah, I'd like to say I've moved on, but I probably think about it every few days of my life ever since. But, <laughs> oh, no, I think that sort of... It, it was, wasn't it? Steve Waugh, there's no bigger name in the game and an established player and me a no-name that probably, uh, you know, never to be seen again. But it was one of those moments, you know, you, you sort of got a sense you could change your life here. And that's why we watch sport. You can, you can watch someone change their life in an afternoon and uh, it doesn't always happen every afternoon, but it's a, it's a game of moments. And, you know, I sort of, I just, yeah, I, when I think about it, just the five balls or the whole over, the whole build-up to it. And... Um, May or may not be aware, but Steve and I do go back because I played under 19s against him, taking tr- an awful shellacking from him as a young man. And so yeah. it always had a bit of an edge to it. Um, and uh, not from his point of view, but certainly from mine. And um, yeah, I was always pretty pumped up bowling to Steve because I, you know, he'd give me such a caning in under 19s. Um, and then to be at that moment, yeah, it was great. And there was a. 
Little moment, I don't know if you've seen on TV, he just gives me a little nod, I think, on one of them. Yes. But he's, sort of, he, he's, yeah. he's smirking at you. It looks yeah, like he's right. smirking at you. You, you, you give him the stare, uh, I, th- I think, on the, the dot ball you bowl to him with three to go, and then he gives you the look as he scurries through for a single, which he's only just got because you've got down to it and, and almost, if it had a stuck, you could have flicked it back and, and, and maybe run him out. So he's, but he's certainly given you a nod, and that's seen on TV. Yeah, nod or a smirk, I'm not sure. Me and Steve, I mean... I'd taken an awful caning from him in under-19s and then we'd played a little bit of club cricket and then the season before we'd had a tough battle at the Gabba and he'd gone off retired hurt and then I think he sought some sort of comeback in the Sydney game earlier that summer and he'd had a bit to say and again we'd started to have some pretty good tussles um, so it, was, it always had an edge because he'd been so dominant over me in 19s and uh, and then, for, you know, again, you know, one of the biggest names in the world and a really established player and me, this sort of no-name, kind of sort, of sort of said everything about the contest between Australia A and Australia. But, yeah, I do remember the, you know, the whole over kind of slows down in your memory, but uh, I do I just do remember him making eye contact after one of them. Greg Wells done everything but get a run out here. Stephen Moore can't believe it. That one ball as well, of course, it's... It's remarked upon in commentary that if uh, if you haven't got a hand to it, he's run out by miles from mid-off or mid-on because they're, they're up so close, aren't they? I didn't see the replay for years and people used to say to me, get to the pub, it's on at the moment, and, it, and I never saw it. But Matthew Hayden used to say to me, I was right there. You know, I was right there, I would have run him out. I didn't quite <laughs> sure what he meant, but he, you know, he was a good mover. He was right in behind me. If I hadn't, uh, I think I made good ground to get to it, but then it Amazing, didn't Amazing, this is it. I said, like, before, what, you, in your follow-through, you've yeah. moved a mile and gone full length to get your hand to it. Oh, it was when I was a younger man, but he was right there and he would have run out and uh, and then you really would have perhaps seen some chaos in the uh, in the last over. But as it was, um, it was back to the mark and away we go again. I think that was fourth ball or something. You squeeze another dot ball out of Ian Healy, who you would have bowled to an enormous amount in, in Queensland. And so Australia still need... A run from the last uh, from the last ball. Well, I think he's bowled fabulously all the way through. I've been really impressed. I've seen him in the other matches. He's played. He's used his head. Not got carried away by the occasion. He's kept cool. What are you thinking as you as you're running in? Because obviously it. Well, it's the it's the the attempted Yorker that becomes a full toss. Is that is that what it was? I guess it was. I mean, I think I got some advice from um, Damien Martin was on one side of the wicket and Matthew on the other. But by then it was all emotion. And but you know, rightly or wrongly, I probably just thought I'll just let this moment play out, where I should have perhaps been a little more specific. I was trying to bowl the Yorker. It got full. That getting into too much detail. Heels had this thing of chipping over the infield at that mm. stage. It was kind of his thing. He didn't really hit boundaries, but he'd hit a lot of the chipping over chip here. And I, ha- I was just conscious of him kind of just giving it that Cadbury whip over mid wicket, and perhaps um, with hindsight, just keep it simple, full. Maybe even back of a length, but the other five were Yorkers. It was going to be another one, and and it, he went to he did actually go to turn it, got the leading edge, and it sort of went through gully. You know, for a moment, like all bowlers, you think there's going to be some miracle catch. <laughs> the last ball, it's Greg Brown. It's Malor. He's got it up in the air. He's got it away. Races away for four. And then just kind of deflated as you realise, oh no, it's going to go to the boundary. After that, and he does bowl well in, in the second final at the MCG too, albeit without luck and without wickets. He works a lot with Dennis Lilly, which is important because his action is something that does come under increasing scrutiny as his career um, gets deeper in. He ends up in Tasmania. He never gets called for throwing, but there's that suggestion around Australian cricket that he's got a kink in his action, which is a bit unfortunate. So he, he finishes playing earlier than you might expect. I think about right. three years after that standout performance with Australia A. And that's it for him, the player. But he has a fabulous grade career with Western Suburbs, goes on to become an administrator, president of the club. He tries to get on the Queensland Cricket Board unsuccessfully. He's a local lawyer in suburban Brisbane. His office where I've interviewed him is right near the Gabba. It's in Wool and Gabba. Um, so he's had um, success as a, a lawyer. And when Mike Kaspovich, who I mentioned before, came off the Australia Cricket Australia Board in, in 2021, Greg Rao was nominated by Queensland Cricket. I don't think he was an independent director. I think he went on as a nominee of, of Queensland Cricket. Either way, um, he's currently a director of 
CA, which is a significant thing. And, and the last thing I'll mention in that interview we did for Aussie greatest season that was, Greg told us that to this day, to this day, his green playing trousers from that series with Australia A, he still wears around the house as a pair of trackies, <laughs> uh, which his wife gives him shit about, uh, but he doesn't care because to him, that's a very proud moment and so it should be, but he had his moment. Oh, and why 30.98, that was his first class bowling average. He took in 48 first class games, 147 wickets at 30.98, so never quite good enough to go um, to the next level. Took 27 list day wickets, a number of them for Aussie A mm -hmm. at 34 and a, a career best figures it was seven for 46 for Queensland. How much money did you offer him to buy the trousers? We did talk about it. We, we did, but he, you know, it, it, jokingly though, because he's proud of it. He, yeah. he is very proud of the fact that there was that, that moment when, and he was talked about quite a lot after as well. But yeah, anyway, it's a great story. And, and Greg Rowe's a lovely, understated man, and I'm sure he's doing a top job as a director. Maybe you could arrange some sort of bequest thing where if, 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 you know, God forbid he predeceases you. Maybe he could leave you the trousers in the in the will. I don't know. You 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 could be an elderly man. And you'd, you'd finally get to strap them on. Uh, Greg Rowell, that is the story. Thank you, Kieran, for your pledge. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to the Final Word with Adam and Jeff. We've got one more we can do before we need to, I don't know, um, actually go to work. I've, um, I've got to go to work, work. In, about, um, in about six minutes, so we'll yep. try and manage this carefully. <laughs> Steve Dodd, uh, £5.30, he says this, if it were not for this player's final test, the pledge would have been one for the not a Julio pot. And due to me not being a cheapskate and the rules of patron, I couldn't go as low as the final stat or figures. So my pledge is one of the numbers that makes up the final stat. So it's someone who had an even number until right. their last test match. Uh, I, I sent te Steve a text the other day. I, I saw him at a live show, didn't get to chat to him properly. Joins at the Dulwich Hamlet occasionally. I spoke at his work last year as well, okay. um, which was a cool thing. So he's a nice bloke and I'm glad he's got this interesting pledge in with you. Okay, so so we're looking for, so a Julio pledge is when someone sends in say $2 or $4 or $6 and, and you're not sure if, if it's supposed to be a nerd pledge or not. Does it, ha does it have a story attached to it or is it just a, uh, a, re a regular donation? Because not everybody wants to do a nerd pledge. Some people just want to contribute and they don't have a story for the show. So it's got to be an even number, but it's to do with minimums, which get confusing because they change by currency. So if you're in dollars or pounds, then because you, 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 you set a monthly maximum on Patreon. And so you could, you could set it to their minimum, which would be like two quid or $2 US. But if it's in Australian dollars, it's $3.50 because yeah. the amounts, the, the, the value is different. And, and that so, changes from time to time as well because yeah. the exchange rate bounces around and it gets confusing but you can actually make it lower if you don't select a level because there are different levels on patreon if you just freestyle and say there's no level i'm just making a contribution then you can get it down below that two dollar mark so if you wanted to do like a dollar 80 twice a month instead of two dollars 80 once a month then overall that works out better for the patron balance and so you can do that you just need to set it up in the in the settings so i don't know exactly what minimum is coming up against this is the reason i'm trying to explain this because it could be 200 in some currencies it could be 350 in aud if if we're going as low as you can possibly go then then i think it's pro probably got to be under two dollars so we're looking at something that's 100 or something that's 200 or something that in australian dollars is 300 and the first thing I was thinking of was players who took just over 100 career wickets and who had 100 of them before their last match, something like that, okay. and who then went over it and who at some point during their careers took five for 30 amongst their 100 and whatever wickets. So the players just over 100 wickets, uh, Terra Turner, favourite of the show, Bobby Peel, another one. Pissed on the pitch. Lasith Malinga. Uh, Shivlal Yadav was a right-arm off-spinner for in India in the 80s. Johnny Wardle, a left-arm mm. operator for England in the 40s and 50s. There's John Bracewell, the sort of the heart of like yep. capable, gritty New Zealand cricket. Paul Harris, the South African spinner. George Giffen, Paul Rifle. We've done a nerd pledge story on just about every one of those cricketers, yep. I reckon. I, re I, yeah. I reckon we've missed Shivlal Yadav. Um, you've done Johnny Wardle. We've probably I've haven't done, done John Paul, Bracewell. I've haven't done, done Paul Harris. I've done Paul Rifle. Uh, yep. Yeah. There've been, there's some popular names there. Yeah, and Giffen. We haven't done as much on Giffen as we, you might have we thought. We have done a Giffen though. Yeah, it's but not, not you know, some some of the early big names we do a lot on. Nobody, none of those players took five for thirty in their careers, right? So it can't be them. I looked at the players just over two hundred. Sacklane Mushtak and Stuart McGill both ended their careers on two hundred and eight. Andy Roberts on two hundred and two. But each of those three only took one wicket in his final Test match, right. so they didn't go past 
200 in the final match. Jon Snow did go past 200 in, in his final match, but went from 196 to 202. Fred Truman ended up with 307, but didn't take seven in his last match. So I couldn't find anything that would match that, that would work in, in that regard. So I sent it to CSI, um, yep. and they haven't come back with they, they've been they've been mulling it over for the last couple of hours and haven't made great progress yet. One suggestion is this: Jack Iverson averaged exactly one run with the bat before his last innings, in which he made a duck. So he made one run. He, he played five matches, yep. scored three runs, and ended with naught, which would be three, five, zero. And, and and his batting was comical. Remembering how late in life he came to, to playing yep. after World War Two, and Gideon um, talks about this in, in great depth. But he you know he could barely field and he could barely bat he could do one thing and do it extremely well and that's why he was player of the ashes in um, in that series well I say player of the ashes he was Australia's yep. most effective bowler in that series he ends up with a batting average of 0.75 in, in test yep. cricket um, which which tells you something so so maybe it's to do with runs I've got I've got some different categories to chew through as yet Steve I haven't been able to track it down but if you want to give me a nudge in the right statistical category direction then we can circle back and revisit this on a future show thank you Steve thank you everybody who sent through pledges in recent weeks as well. I know these are quite short at the moment, short and sharp, but um, we'll get back into the usual rhythm of story time. In fact, we've had some feedback saying they've enjoyed the shorter show, so we are considering a model where we do a couple a week, but, yeah, we need to recover after this series and regroup and um, work out what direction we're taking story time. But we love making it, and the number of people who have signed up to become patrons during the Ashes, we love every Phenomenal. single one of you. Yeah, it's going to make a, so much. a huge difference to what's possible. We, we were touch and go as to whether we could go to the World Cup in October, just due to the way in which our other work is playing out. But on the back of the support we've had from Patreon, I think we probably will now be able to go, which is at, at least, least for, for a couple of, of weeks yeah. at the end. So that's that's really nice and, and, and makes a, a huge difference to the, um, the the depth of the programming we can make. So um, I've got to go because I've got to jump on radio in two and a half minutes. But this has been the Final Word Storytime number 144, patreon.com forward slash the final word if you wish to join us in this broader mission of telling stories about uh, the, the best of the past of the game. And finally, 144, in a base 12 world, this would be the century. 12 12s. You know, 12 12s, 144. This would be, oh, raise your bat, it's 144. <laughs> Arbitrary numbers. Better than 150, 144. Get one of those up here. Uh, this has been story time. We'll see you later. Have a nice weekend, I guess. So you know what I meant. I had to get-